Thought Leadership from PwC. Corporations, I think they are coming into the year with a pretty strong bank of trust to spend. And I think the key question for them is, how are you going to continue to manage to be a trustworthy individual, a trustworthy C-suite, a trustworthy board, a trustworthy brand? I will say that the wait and see approach that we see a lot of clients adopting, waiting for the disruption to pass is probably misreading the situation. Businesses who made uh, big and early long-term bets in terms of transformation were able to pull themselves further away. With a look at the changing macroeconomic and geopolitical dynamics for companies in the year ahead, this is a special episode of PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. In the 5th century BC, a Greek philosopher posited the idea that the only constant in life is change. More than 2,000 years later, at the onset of the year 2022, Most of us would likely laugh in exasperation if someone posed this statement to us as a new idea. In 2022, unfortunately, change is not only part of life, it's pretty much defined our lives for the past two years. Today, we're bringing you a special episode focused on the shifting macroeconomic and geopolitical dynamics that our PwC intelligence specialists are expecting to see in the year ahead as we think about what's changing. Our guests today, Craig Stromberg and Zane Zadiki, directors with PwC's intelligence practice, are here to help us cut through the noise and gain a few key insights about what trends are shaping the world ahead in 2022. We also loop back to a brief history lesson, which I personally found helpful to give us some perspective. We think there's something in this conversation for everyone, and you'll want to listen for areas that will particularly impact your business. With that, let's get started. Craig, Zane, welcome. Looking forward to talking about what's coming in 2022. And all I could say is I know for myself, and I'm sure many people in our audience, we're hoping for some good news. Um, And so anyway, think of at least one positive message you're going to give us. But I guess just to start things out, maybe to state the obvious, So almost two years, and I think it's actually a little over two years since we probably first heard about COVID-19. But, you know, we're still looking at lots of impact from the virus. So what do we really expect to be coming from that? So I think we are all probably at a place, at least if I think about me and my family and my colleagues last year at this time, that we hoped that we were out of the woods. And of course, you know, we went through a whole nother year and here we are again, and we're still in the woods. I'm hoping that we are nearing the end of all of this, but I think what is important for businesses to understand is that there's a couple of things here. And I think we've talked about bits and pieces of this on previous episodes, but I think the conversation that we're having today will pull all of this together. I think one thing to understand up front is that just as we as individuals feel a little discombobulated coming out of COVID, the world is the same. The world has been thrown off kilter geopolitically, macroeconomically, in terms of the supply chain, in terms of labor. And 
one of the really important lessons for businesses is that if businesses are expecting a return, a snapback to where we were before all of this started, that's probably not something that's going to happen. The world has shifted almost like an earthquake separating a road that can no longer be connected. The road's still there, but it's going in a different direction. And I think the sooner that businesses understand that and understand the forces that are working in this new world and how COVID has accelerated some, stopped others and decelerated others, as soon as they understand what the world is probably going to look like, the more sure they can be they're going to be able to operate in that world, no matter whether we're near the end of the woods or we still have a bit of a way to go. So before we get into the issues, are you going to predict if we're at the end of the woods or if we have a ways to go? Or are you saying maybe it doesn't really matter because we just need to focus on these forces and you know respond to them? So I think we're closer, at least in my opinion, to that it doesn't particularly matter whether we are at the pandemic or the pandemic is about to become endemic because the disequilibrium which is the takeaway word we want from the podcast and the takeaway concept, which we have talked about before. Mm -hmm. The disequilibrium that has been produced and accelerated and strengthened by all the forces unleashed during COVID is here to stay, even if COVID stopped tomorrow. This equilibrium is going to be a business reality that regardless of your size or your location or your sector, you're going to have to deal with. And so even if it ends, Companies are going to have to deal with this equilibrium that will probably last beyond 2022, but it's certainly going to find its legs and start running this year. All right. So then if we take your word, the disequilibrium, which is not the easiest word to say, uh, what are sort of the top issues on your list then of these forces that, again, put aside COVID, we can talk about the impact of COVID, but even without COVID now, that CFOs and, and corporate executives need to be focused on. So I'll start here and then I'll hand it off to Zane, because I think the easiest way to deconstruct these is that some of them are more geopolitical than macroeconomic. Some are more economic than geopolitical. You can't separate those. You know, as Zane is fond of saying, they're two sides of the same coin but some are more than others. I think when we look at the issues that are at hand for businesses this year, the big strategic issues to be aware of, where we are most concerned is the distrust that is out in the environment. Distrust of data, distrust of the government, distrust of authority figures, distrust of science, Distrust of even some companies and brands, because distrust is very difficult to contain. This is acting as gasoline on a whole bunch of fires that are ongoing. If you add to that the politicalization that exists in the country, that is beginning to affect companies, because that is beginning to affect how people make buying decisions. And if it's not doing that a lot right now, it's laying the groundwork to do that now and a lot in the future. And distrust makes that worse. Distrust leads to and accelerates 
the challenges that the U.S. is having in establishing or reestablishing itself as a global leader. And that also drives things like protectionism and shifts in foreign direct investment and supply chain challenges. And that's probably where Zane should join us. Our macroeconomic discussion dovetails quite nicely with the discussion that Craig provided. Um, the big takeaway um, in our 2022 macro outlook is uh, that we are entering into a new era of macroeconomic volatility. Uh, the pandemic has injected a lot of volatility into the macroeconomic data over the last few years, uh, two years. Uh, we think this volatility will remain high this year. Um, and this is not just about COVID uh, or the course of the pandemic, even though that has a very sizable impact, but there are other forces at play as well, which weren't there a couple of years ago. Uh, public spending uh, is expected to decline 20% this year, uh, which is the most since uh, the end of World War II. Uh, worker shortages, supply constraints, as Craig mentioned, will also be with us through this year. Uh, at the same time, the Fed has adopted a very hawkish policy stance. Uh, we are seeing the Fed wind down asset purchases uh, from $3 trillion annually um, to zero and perhaps even negative in the space of two years. Uh, the Fed is also moving very aggressively towards multiple rate hikes, and that too with a very new and untested framework. That doesn't happen very often. So these uh, factors and others uh, that Craig just discussed could lead to sustained macroeconomic vol volatility even beyond the near term for many of the companies. All right. So I wanted to hit specifics on these, but Craig, I have to take advantage that you're a historian. <laughs> and before we go on, can you, is there another time where you saw, like if we look back in U.S. history, where we would see this level of sort of distrust politicalization and some of these other, you know, the instability almost or the disequilibrium that we're seeing? Yeah, unfortunately there is. And unfortunately it fits very neatly into the period that we were in about a hundred years ago. Between the world wars. Between the world wars. I was worried just, that was going to be your answer. Just, just after a major pandemic. Um, where there were huge fluctuations in, if you think about individual people and families, huge fluctuations beginning between those who were becoming very wealthy and those who were either poor and remaining poor and couldn't move up the, you know, the chain of income, huge disparities beginning to increase in terms of education, access to capital, access to real estate, access to transportation. You know, all the commodities of the day that you needed to be successful. Massive numbers of families suffered because of the pandemic, you know, the great influenza pandemic. They were not easy to replace in the workforce. And this led to all sorts of follow-on repercussions for how labor reacted during the interwar period, how people trusted figures of authority during the labor period, interwar period. And how people's trust overall began to divide. And it really doesn't come back and rebound until December 7th, 1941. The country doesn't become unified again until the attack on Pearl Harbor. Until then, it was remarkably divided. 
you know, and people were following different types of leaders and the conversation about commerce was very political. The conversation about culture was very political. So the politicalization of the consumer base that we are seeing is reticent and does echo of that period. You know, there are advantages to this period 100 years ago. There was tremendous growth of commerce, tremendous advancement in terms of engineering, same kind of advancement you're seeing today in terms of telecom and ICT. But a lot of those negative forces about distrust and loss and the inability to make your way up the economic ladder, those are all being echoed in the system in which we're operating and which companies must operate in today. So we'll get into the specifics of what companies can do to respond to some of these forces. But again, big picture question, do you see what type of event other than another world war, which I hope is, you know, we're not seeing in the cards, can we see to kind of like, let's say, tilt us back in a more, I'll call it positive direction? I think that the event that is most likely to do that is going to move glacially. And that is going to be the rise to power of a generation that sees the world very differently than many of those who are in power today. They tend to see the world very entrepreneurially. They tend to see the world with far more openness when it comes to ethnicity, sexual orientation, they tend to make friends globally before they've ever met people and they are very comfortable with adaptations to technology and communication as that group grows in power and wealth i think you will see changes in the way that trust evolves in the way that the government evolves and the way that business evolves but you're talking about a decades-long process all right. Well, that's still a more positive answer than I was potentially hoping for. Uh, so a little less cataclysmic. So let's get into specifics. And I'm going to start with one uh, supply chain. And maybe we can tie that together with sort of, you know, from a worker shortage, shortage point of view. Because I think, again, very simplistically, not coming at this from, you know, being an economist, it's hard to understand, putting aside COVID, unless it is just COVID, how we went from fully stocked shelves, you know, plenty of labor and all of those things to, you know, this morning, all of my local coffee shops near me closed. And they all had signs that said, sorry, temporarily closed labor shortage. And obviously, you know, there's illness and other things circulating right now. But where, like, how do we get exactly here? And again, how do we see this changing? So supply chains, as you mentioned, Heather, uh, and we tried to look at this story um, for uh, both over the near term and the long term. Supply chains are obviously on the minds of not only um, companies and policymakers, but the average consumer as well. Um, a lot of the supply chain issues that we are into is mainly because of the surge in demand, which is really historic in nature. Our supply chains just weren't ready for this. Um, when it comes to supply chains, we now are seeing some tentative signs of easing, uh, but we think the normalization will probably take a lot longer. Um, shipping costs have come down a bit, but they still 
remain very high. Uh, when it comes to consumer electronics, we are seeing uh, production in Southeast Asia slowly come back up to speed towards capacity. Uh, these are all positive developments, but we do think there are structural challenges that are emerging and have been present for some time. Uh, COVID may not be a cause of those, it, but it was probably a catalyst. Um, we are seeing these challenges uh, most acute in areas of transportation, especially trucking and port capacity in the U.S., uh, where we don't expect uh, a return to pre-COVID levels of freight rates or lead times. Uh, we are also seeing some ac acute pressures persisting in parts of the leading edge supply chain in semiconductors, including areas around decarbonization. These are some of the impulses which we weren't seeing before, which we are now. Uh, this, uh, these areas include, by the way, both EV materials as well as the battery supply chain. Uh, and we think these areas will continue to require sustained long-term investments to keep up with the rising demand. Um, now, where we slightly diverge from the consensus is um, on intermediary input or materials prices. Uh, we expect bouts of commodity inflation to continue. Moving forward, uh, we have seen chronic underinvestment in energy infrastructure over time. But at the same time, we are entering a new normal. Um, we now have more than 130 countries uh, who have committed to achieve uh, net zero by 2050. This will require a massive build out of green infrastructure, which will lead to a lot of front loading of demand, not just of metals, but commodities in general that we need for energy transition. And given that supply for most of these commodities tends to be very inelastic and slow to respond, we think that this will translate into much higher uh, material prices in coming years. So the main takeaway for us here is that intermediary input cost uh, is going to be a big theme that we feel will continue to weigh on corporate margins moving forward. Uh, this is not an issue where companies can wait and see and wait for the disruption to pass through. Uh, this is where many businesses would probably require, um, would probably need to make structural changes to their business models. So I want to come back to labor, because I think this is a separate question, because we're focused here on supply. And again, if I'm listening, and you talk about, you know, companies needing to make structural changes. So putting aside the green for a second, if I'm you know, running, I'm, I need goods to sell to my customers. If costs just keep going up, then are we just going to continue to have inflation? So then I keep raising my prices to my customers and there's a cycle there or how, you know, as again, a CFO, how should I be thinking about these constraints in my supplies? So, so there are two sides of it, right? So when we talk, so there's a consumer side and there's a intermediary input side. For many businesses, intermediary input side tends to be very critical. Uh, that's where most of the cost pressures exist. Um, there's another question uh, whether they could pass on some of those costs in the form of higher prices, uh, whether they can protect the pricing power that they have. Um, generally, when it comes to consumer prices, we think the most extreme price pressures are probably going to moderate by the middle of this year. And I know we have been saying this since last year. Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, having said that, uh, when you look within the macro data, a lot of the demand has been pulled forward. This demand will probably diminish moving forward, uh, which will act as a pressure valve uh, for many of the consumer prices. Uh, but also, uh, when you look back, a lot of the spending was highly correlated with the fiscal stimulus. Uh, we are seeing fiscal impulse, which is diminishing now. 
uh, we think uh, spending will probably moderate from here on out, and that will also uh, lead to some moderation in consumer prices. But having said that, um, our view on intermediary uh, input cost inflation tends to be a bit more different. We think that cost is probably going to remain elevated and will continue to put, uh, will continue to have margin, uh, provide margin pressure moving forward. Uh, labor shortages, as you mentioned, um, were probably the biggest surprises for us uh, since the onset of the pandemic. Uh, labor shortages are still preventing many companies from operating at capacity. And this has led to millions or even billions um, in some case, losses in some cases and foregone profits for many companies. Uh, our view on labor shortages tends to be a bit more bearish. We don't expect uh, a complete recovery in labor force participation rate. In fact, we think wage growth will be the biggest source of margin pressure in the coming years. Uh, and this is mainly because we view most of these shortages to be structural in nature. There is some labor which is being held back due to childcare and COVID fears. Uh, and we expect at least some of these workers will return at some point in the coming months. But this group uh, now represents uh, only a small share of workers that's missing from the labor force. Uh, the big issue is that we have had more than 2 million people who have retired early. These workers are less likely to return. We are also missing some 1.4 million immigrants and temporary workers, which we likely won't be able to make up through higher future immigration. Immigration policy is also becoming a lot more restrictive. Um, and then overlaid on top of these issues is the fact that both U.S. and Europe are going through a peak demographic drag. Uh, so even if we do get some cyclical pickup in participation over time, this factor alone will keep labor supply lower for longer. And if I may provide a bit more context here, if you look at the peak year for the baby boom generation, it was 1957. This cohort is turning 66 sometime this or next year. This is when they will become eligible for Social Security benefits. So we could see another drop off in labor force participation sometime this or next year, almost in a stepwise function. So we think labor shortages will be with us for some time. Uh, they may materialize differently across uh, sectors. Uh, wage growth will continue to accelerate. Uh, in fact, um, you know, if you look at our baseline view, uh, it, it, it calls for wage growth that will be even stronger this year, averaging around 6%. Uh, that's a lot of margin pressure moving forward. And it won't just be new hires who would be demanding a higher wage, but uh, we could see a lot of pent-up demand from, from incumbents, which we didn't really see last year, who we think will set the wage in this market instead of uh, uh, taking a wage. So costing pressures on margin now I have labor shortages so how do i solve this automation you know like if i'm trying to think about this of how i can sort of tackle this issue it seems like in the long run particularly if you're seeing that the labor issue is more structural just hoping the workforce comes back and labor costs go back down is not going to be the answer so how how do you think about this so the main takeaway is um we have a lot of big uh, secular trends which are coming together. Um, this includes, obviously, the aging of the workforce, uh, but also a move towards net zero and decarbonization, which will effectively reorganize how we do things in society. Um, the pandemic, as I mentioned, is not the cause of many of these factors, but it has been a catalyst in some form. Um, 
But these changes uh, will continue to impact uh, across supply chains from labor to intermediary inputs. Um, I will say that the wait and see approach that we see a lot of clients adopting um, and waiting for the disruption to pass is probably misreading the the situation. These are structural changes which are happening and they will require structural changes to the business model as well. Um, The example that I will give is of COVID businesses who made uh, big and early long-term bets uh, in terms of transformation were able to pull themselves further away from companies at the medium, median and at the bottom. Um, but businesses need to um, first identify what some of these risks are, measure those risks, and then um, invest uh, in long-term transformation projects. This will be a five to 10-year journey that they will need to invest in. I would add here that if we think back to this pre-COVID period, part of the conversation that we were all having about business was about the onset of the fourth industrial revolution and the concerns of what automation would do to the workforce. Yeah, it seems like so long ago, but it you're does right. Seem like that so was like t- only a couple years ago. It's only a couple years ago. It does seem like a long time ago, <laughs> but that conversation still has to happen. And it has been, to Zane's point, greatly affected in the minds of executives by what by the lessons they have learned about the workforce during COVID. So they're going to learn how to make new decisions about that debate with new facts and new anecdotes and new case studies. But that whole issue still has to be dealt with. And the crest of the automation wave probably hasn't quite begun to gather, but it will. And it, that's still something that you know you and I and Zane are going to be talking about seven, eight years from now. Yes, and I just wrote down a note to do a podcast much sooner than seven or eight years or now, um, you know, on on that particular topic. So putting that aside, we've mentioned a few times stimulus, and we also mentioned the need for investment to, to have this green future that we're talking about, the net zero future. And, you know, compared to, again, maybe where we expected to be when we talked about this, say, six months ago, we haven't seen more stimulus that we thought we might. We're not seeing the government spending necessarily we thought we might. So how does that factor in to this conversation? Maybe putting, can put them together or separate the need for green investment. And then is there going to be the government funding um, to continue to kind of drive some of this? I think the issue that or the way that we would frame the answer is that one of the issues that we talked about and it comes to play in answer to this, that we think businesses need to pay more attention to this year is the politicalization of the consumer base. And the politicalization that is happening is making decision-making more difficult in Washington than it's ever been. Even about things where generally you would think there would be agreement. And to Zane's points about labor, the 1.4 million immigrants that we're missing, we can't get because we can't get the consensus about immigration policy to start to bring in new talent and new labor to start to fill some of those positions. So the politicalization that it may impact businesses this year in terms of the way they consume and make decisions about brands is absolutely changing investment decisions at the federal level and the state level. And what it means, unfortunately, is 
that we probably can't expect the type of federal investment that we would like. And in the long run, this challenges the U.S.'s competitiveness on a global level. And it has an impact overall in terms of innovation, too. Now, there is, there is a place, obviously, for businesses to play here. But some of the things that have to happen are beyond the scope of what a business would be responsible to do, even in a time when they might assume a greater role. So at the moment, and probably for the foreseeable future, as we are here in a midterm election year, only two years away from another presidential election, which really means a year away from the beginning of that cycle, not the best time to find concurrence across the aisle in Washington. So a lot of those key investments that might change the calculus and the underpinning of the macro economy, it's just going to be very hard to come by. So Craig, one of the things we had talked about, again, maybe a year ago, was the fact that there was a lot of distrust, but that people were turning to companies because there was more trust in, say, corporations than you would see in government or some of the other traditional structures. But then what you're saying now is because of this politicalization, it's starting to bleed into people's feelings on companies, corporations. So if I'm a company and now I have customers who might not buy my product because I'm too committed to net zero or they might not buy my product for some other decision I've made, how, again, how do I think about it in the context of trust, but as well as just maintaining my customers? And is there even an opportunity here, potentially? I think there's a lot of opportunity. So one of the things we need to unpack is that generally, corporations fared very well during COVID Mm -hmm. in terms of being evaluated by their stakeholders and their employees for how they managed their companies, their workforces, their supply chains, you know, communication about what was happening and what might happen. They fared much better in general than government leaders or scientific leaders, even some religious leaders. I think what that gives a lot of corporate leaders as we sit here in very early 22 is a trust dividend. I think they are coming into the year into an atmosphere of disequilibrium where there is generally a lot of distrust with a pretty strong bank of trust to spend. And I think the key question for them is, how are you going to continue to manage to be a trustworthy individual, a trustworthy C-suite, a trustworthy board, a trustworthy brand in the midst of all this politicalization? I don't know that we are yet seeing the politicalization in the electoral base transfer over concretely to brand identification. But what we are very concerned with is that we're right on the edge of that, that the politicalization that is happening cannot be contained to politics and elections, and that it it might go over into where you shop or where the person you like or don't like shops, and that might make you make decisions about what you do and don't do. And we know through conversations with some companies that they're also watching to see if this risk manifests itself. But one of the things that business does have going for it, I think, is this trust dividend. The fact that they did well 
And if they continue to manage their communication, if they continue to manage their stakeholder groups well, if they continue to be clear in a sea of confusion about COVID, they may be able to gather their trust dividend throughout the year and even go into 2023 with it. So they may yet have a good news story to tell. So one of the key things with corporations and trust is obviously with employees. So I want to come back to Zane. We started talking about you know, the workforce. We mentioned earlier the great resignation. How does that fit in the fact that we have so many people voluntarily leaving their positions and maybe even sitting on the side and not wanting to work? How does that factor into all of this conversation? I think that's a very important input. Uh, one thing that we have seen, um, especially with the great resignation, now you have some people who are leaving uh, for higher paying jobs. Uh, labor market is very tight. They can afford to do that. Um, you have others who are quitting because of COVID fears or because they may not may need more flexibility and more work-life balance. Uh, there are also child care issues which are reigning supreme as well. Um, so there are a few different angles through which we can look at it, right? So we know that the central tendency amongst businesses have been that they have moved towards more of a work-from-home model. Uh, but that model, uh, inherently, it, it tends to be unequal. And the reason why I say this is because you have workers who are at the plant level who tend to work very high contact intensive jobs. They may still have to show up. But you have executives who may have the capacity to work from home and to self-isolate. Um, so that's something that, that, which the business or businesses are going through going to be grappling with moving forward. But you're also seeing a big difference in terms of how younger workers respond to incentives versus older workers as well. Um, I think younger workers uh, fundamentally have a different value sets than the previous generations. For them, flexibility and compensation is not a forced trade-off a forced trade-off anymore. Uh, they're looking for more flexibility. They're looking for more work-life balance. But at the same time, uh, they know that they can also demand higher wages given how tight the labor market is. Um, I will give you just one more example. We know that the labor force participation rate for women uh, tends to be, is very low. It hasn't quite recovered. Um, there are different reasons for this, but we also know that to the extent that women have rejoined the labor force, they have demanded more flexibility and more work-life balance. So we are seeing things which we weren't seeing before. Uh, and that's partly driven by what has happened during COVID. So Craig, let me go back to another topic we've talked about in the past, which is on sort of the global here. And, you know, you've, you've mentioned before that we had an opportunity to work globally to sort of fight the pandemic. We obviously have missed much of that opportunity. But how do you see globally companies, countries responding to these forces? Are we going to start to work more together again? Or do you continue to see sort of that nationalistic self-interest first? I think part of it depends on who's in charge. And I think it's worth noting that there are some pretty critical elections coming up this year, including in France and South Korea. And some of those leaders are going to have a particularly important say as to how people in their region respond to global tension. 
I would say that overall, the dynamic that is probably going to continue to dominate is going to be the story of competition between the U.S. and China. I think the key question for China is, can we remain economic partners with the United States, or do we have to figure out a way to do things by ourselves to decouple? I think the key question for the United States is, how do they compete with the Chinese without making people choose sides? Because a lot of the economic partners that we have in particularly Southeast Asia and South Asia are very unwilling to make that decision. And I think you're seeing the current administration being very careful about making people choose sides. So right now, things with China are at a low boil. And I think both Beijing and Washington have worked hard to make them that way. They're dampening tensions down as much as they can. What happens after 2024 and 2028, however, could rapidly change that around. Regardless, the, the loss of U.S. power that has been underway for 20 years is a serious challenge to any U.S. government to start to try and get global consensus back. And I don't think we're going to see as much in a post-COVID world, every country for itself, but you will probably see regions coming closer together to try and govern in a more effective way. And you've seen some pretty interesting success stories during COVID. You know, one of the countries that initially stumbled that is now flourishing is Italy, for instance, you know, where their governance and the way they handled the epidemic lasted the test of resilience. And so you're going to have different players that are going to be able to contribute geopolitically, but I don't think it's going to be a more unified world. Um, and I think what's going to happen in Ukraine in the next couple of weeks will have a lot to do with this. But it's probably going to be a world that is going to be looked at for some time through the prism of what happens between the U.S. and China. All right. So definitely a lot to think about there. And I think that loops back to some of supply chain and other issues we yep. talked about earlier. So, again, you know, I think we could have a whole other podcast on that. few final questions. I'll ask both of you these. What other topics are sort of top of mind for you in terms of forces, factors that companies should be thinking about that we maybe haven't delved as deeply into today? Um, and Craig, I'll go to you first. So I've got two, one big one and one kind of interesting one. I think the big one is part of what I would like to see happen over the next couple of years is that businesses really begin to understand the individual and collective failures of imagination that occurred during COVID, especially in the early parts of 2020. What decisions did they make because of assumptions that they had about healthcare, transportation, logistics, technology, workforce, supply chain, that ended up not proving to be true? because they never imagined that things could get so bad that their workforces would all have to be remote and that they wouldn't be able to travel and that the goods they wanted, because as Zane said, everybody was at home ordering online, wouldn't be available. All of that is a failure of imagination. It, it takes a lot for a business that operates at a very high speed to get a group of executives 
out of their day-to-day and put them in a room and start to think about the critical strategic assumptions that underpin their business. But I think part of what COVID has taught me is that businesses probably ought to do it. And they ought to do it more than once a year because failures of imagination can be combated. And if you as a business can identify what your critical assumptions are and what your failures of imagine might be in the future and your competitors can't, you will be agile and they will not be. So that's the biggie. I think the small one that I am looking for this year in terms of seeing results is something that we've talked about on a previous podcast, which is what is going to happen with the digital Chinese currency that is going to be unveiled in a few days at the Olympics? How is it going to be received? How is the technology going to work? How is the case study going to be used by other countries to prove or disprove that they should not also have a digital currency? And so I'm, I'm very curious to see beyond all of the coverage that will go to the Olympics themselves, what are businesses going to be watching about how countries may start changing the dynamics of digital currencies in the next couple of years? Well, and actually, Craig, to that point, I had seen something last week that said there's like now 130 countries or some number around that that are considering these digital currencies, which, again, I think when we spoke about this a year ago, it was like a few, a handful. So, I mean, that's a huge change in such a short period of time. And they're all going to be watching the same thing we're watching to see how does this work and what lessons can they learn. All right. So another topic for us to talk about. Zane, what else is on your list? We are, um, the big theme that we are going to be following um, is rising geopolitical risks to corporations. Um, We, as Craig alluded to, uh, we now have multiple economic power poles and each of them are pursuing somewhat different strategies when it comes to trade rules, tech standards, and indeed supply chains. U.S.-China is a great example of this. Uh, Both countries uh, have moved almost in a synchronized manner towards a model um, where they define for themselves what they think is in their best economic and national security interest. Uh, And in order to promote those interests, we have seen both countries adopt policies that we think will lead to long-term restructuring of supply chains. So what this means is that the global operating environment will probably become a lot more tighter. Moving forward, um, most companies at some point will face a canonical trade-off, whether to stay or to leave. Uh, Companies that have benefited from globalization and access to end markets and low-cost production networks will probably need to recalibrate and start accounting for these very new kinds of barriers and frictions in commerce uh, between not just U.S., China, but other countries as well. So this is a key theme that we are watching going into this year as well as in coming years. So our overall discussion has not been quite as positive as I was hoping, but we did along the way mention opportunities. So maybe to wrap things up, if each of you could share an, an opportunity that you see for companies as you know they sort of look at this current landscape and Zane, I'll go back to you for that first. Thanks, Heather. Um, I think a big opportunity is uh, in terms of how uh, companies can leverage 
these global forces. I think labor is a very good example of this. Uh, even though our domestic immigration policies are becoming more restrictive, what we are finding is that the talent pool is slowly shifting from more mature advanced economies to emerging economies. Um, already uh, more than 50% of the college educated labor uh, is coming from the emerging markets. Um, so this is a great opportunity for executives, um, for chief human resource officer to partner with a CFO and think how they could leverage uh, talent surpluses in emerging markets moving forward. So I think this is a great opportunity and companies who would do this more effectively uh, would probably uh, pull uh, ahead um, when it comes to labor uh, issues. All right. And Craig, how about from your perspective? So I would say it's to go back to the opportunity for corporate leaders to build on their trust dividend. You know, COVID created this historic shakeup of norms and companies have a chance to build new levels of trust with clients and stakeholders, given the willingness of consumers to reward proactive leadership. You know, we've seen that that's true. And I think that is a remarkable business experiment that nobody wanted. But we've had it, and it's a valuable lesson for a lot of business leaders that they can find a voice in a different way and not just encourage their stakeholders, but gain consumers if they manage that communication and that brand correctly. All right. Well, my sense is that you guys would tell me that disequilibrium can be a negative, but the flip would be that there is going to be opportunity for, for companies and people who identify, you know, the right movements there. So um, definitely a lot for our listeners to think about. And I appreciate as always all your insight. Thanks so much for joining me. We're grateful to have you with us again. Thanks. Thanks for having us. That's it for today. It's been a while since I've asked you for feedback on our show. I'd love for you to reach out to me at heather.horn at pwc.com. Or, of course, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We're really interested in your input and we'll incorporate it in future shows. To make sure that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. With two new episodes released each week, there's something for everyone. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.